Reducing Crime is a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. With over 50 years' experience in and around policing, Charles Ramsey is one of the most revered police leaders in America. He rose through the ranks in Chicago, was chief in Washington, D.C., commissioner in Philadelphia, and co-chaired President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. In our chat covering policing in America, he reflects on where we have been and where we are. I'm Jerry Ratcliffe, and welcome to Reducing Crime. Before we get into this month's episode, a quick note. My most recent book, Reducing Crime, a Companion for Police Leaders, has just been published in Spanish. My thanks to Mirna, Jose Luis, Daniel and Jim Rose for their help and support with the translation. The Spanish version costs 249 Mexican pesos, which is about 13 US dollars. And there is a link to the purchase website at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. Just check out the section related to this episode, number 41. And for this episode, I got to have morning coffee with a legend. Charles Ramsey's been in and around policing for over 50 years. He joined the Chicago Police Department as a cadet in 1968 and was sworn in in 1971. He rose through the Chicago ranks to deputy superintendent in the 1990s before becoming chief of the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. It was quite a turbulent time. He was at the helm during the Chandra Levy murder investigation, the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the 2001 anthrax attacks, remember those, and the 2002 DC sniper investigation. In January 2008, he moved to be the police commissioner in Philadelphia, and during his tenure, homicides dropped below 250 for the first time since the 1980s. Just to put that achievement in some perspective, we're now over 500 for this year. In 2014, President Obama tapped Ramsey to serve as co-chair of the President's Task Force on 21st Century Policing. Chuck Ramsey has also served as President of the Police Executive Research Forum and the Major Cities Chiefs Association. He has Bachelor and Master's degrees from Lewis University in Illinois and is a graduate of the FBI National Academy, the National Executive Institute and the Naval Postgraduate School. A few weeks ago, I stopped by his house and we popped over to a local coffee shop and bakery on Germantown Avenue in the northwest of Philadelphia. It was really noisy inside, so we found a spot outside in the autumn sunshine. Please bear with me as you'll occasionally hear folk coming and going because, well, it's a really popular spot. But as you join our conversation, we are just settling into some marvellous coffee and muffins. They have very good baked bread in here, fresh every day. This is one of the things I like about Philadelphia, not just chains. You still get these little neighborhood coffee shops where people have got interesting weird drinks and the baristas have all got humanities degrees. Well, find a lot of interesting stuff up here at Chestnut Hill. Good food. We just happened to come in a time when a whole lacrosse team decided to stop here for breakfast. There was a time when I was that young. I have a hard time remembering. You joined the job in 71, didn't you? Well, uh, 71 as a sworn, 68 as a cadet. Holy shit, that's more than 50 years. 1968 as a cadet, and all that counts toward my pension. So more than 50 years. Do you think you got the hang of it? No, no, <laughs> still learning. Times change, I mean, you know, you have to adapt and change along with it. 
policing today is a far cry from the 60s or 70s or even 80s or 90s. Is it better? I think in a lot of ways it's better. And I think in, in many ways it's certainly more challenging. There's no question it's more challenging. Would you do it again? Oh yeah, absolutely, in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat. I was just very fortunate because I accidentally became a police officer. I never thought about being a cop as a kid growing up. I wanted to study medicine. My dream at that time was to become a doctor. And I was a freshman at University of Illinois, Chicago, and I was working in a grocery store. There were two cops, three cops actually, that used to come in plainclothes officers from the Inglewood district in, uh, uh, on the south side of Chicago. One of them's sister was a cashier there, and this was in a kind of a dicey neighborhood. So they'd check in on a regular basis to make sure we were okay and all that sort of thing. And over time, struck up a friendship. And one day, I never will forget, this one cop came in and he asked me, he said, you know, where do you see yourself five years from now? What do you want to be doing? How old were you then? About 17, probably. Hell of a question to ask a 17-year-old. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, I hope to be in medical school. I want to become a doctor. He said, well, have you ever thought about police department? And I said, no, I never thought about it. He said, well, the city has this cadet program that, you know, the city will pay your tuition. There's no obligation to become a police officer, but you have to be enrolled in a college or university, full or part-time, and you have to maintain at least a C average. I asked how much they make. Turned out to be double what I was making there. And I said, okay, well, where do I sign up? (laughs) So my dad and I got on a bus, literally, and went down to police headquarters. I signed up and went through a battery of exams, psychological tests. It was more difficult to become a cadet, actually, than it was to become a sworn officer in Chicago. And out of a 1,000 applicants, they chose uh, 50, and I was one of the 50. And once I became a cadet, it was just the right fit for me. I just knew that this was something I could see myself doing for the rest of my life, and I did. What do you think it was? The sense of structure, the sense of purpose? I think it was a sense of purpose more than anything. You know, when I was a kid, my brother's best friend, so I would have been 15 years old, his best friend would come over to our house quite a bit. I grew up in Inglewood on the south side of Chicago, which is to this day a very challenged neighborhood. And I know now my parents would do things just to kind of keep my brother and I and my sister off the street especially in the summertime. So we had a pool table, we had table tennis set up. My father made a little makeshift BB gun range down in the basement where we could shoot at clothespins and stuff. Just to kind of keep us occupied and we could ask a friend over. Well, he was our next door neighbor, my brother's best friend. So he spent the entire day. And on this particular day, got late and it was time for him to go. And he was supposed to go in the house and do some chores for his mother. But it was a nice summer day. And as he was walking to the house, some gangbanger walking down the street saw him and stopped him and said, how do you ride? Which meant, what gang do you belong in? Well, this kid wasn't in a gang. And he panicked, turned to run. This guy stabbed him in the back. You know, I never will forget, it was the second time I ever saw my father cry. The first time was when my grandmother, his mother, passed away. And then it was on this day. This kid's name was Tony Brown. He laying on the sidewalk. Wagon crew came to take him to the hospital, and I saw then what I've come to know as the last gasp when they put him on the stretcher, and you could just that rush of air leaving his lungs, and he died. That was the first homicide, actually, I ever saw. And I think, you know, the helpless feeling I had was one reason why I thought becoming a doctor would be a way in which I could help, but then becoming a cop, 
filled that same void, you know? And so when I look back on it, I think that was it. Once I became one, it filled that hole that I had as a result of what I had witnessed. And so that's how I became a policeman. A few weeks ago, I spoke to Bill Bratton, and he was saying, kind of feels like policing's gone full circle almost, and he's almost back to where we started again. And I'm not sure that feels like that's the case. It doesn't but, feel like what you're to me. But in the 60s, the country coming to a realization of racial injustice, especially in the 60s. And here's you joining the police, kind of wondering about the parallels to today, because black recruitment into the police service is really difficult at the moment. And now in 2021, is it feeling similar? Was, what was it like joining the job then? Well, recruitment in general is difficult, uh, not just with African-Americans, but it's always been a bit of a struggle getting African-Americans in. Because when you really think about it, the kind of abuses of power and authority that some police officers have engaged in yep. normally takes place in communities of color. That didn't like stop at the end of the 60s and then pick back up with Michael Brown in Ferguson. I mean, it's been going on all the time. And so it's always been difficult to recruit. And even when you do recruit successfully, Many get knocked out in the background process. Sometimes that's legitimate, sometimes it's not. And so there are some parallels, but it's never been easy to recruit people of color, men or women. And a lot of it has to do with the history of policing. What not only took place in the past, but what continues, unfortunately, in some cases to take place. During the 70s, when you were on patrol and then you worked narcotics, you were a commander in narcotics eventually. I have no sense of really what the Chicago Police Department was in terms of how it dealt with race internally. Well, I mean, there was definitely systemic racism in the department back in those days, but it was systemic racism everywhere. So it's not like I felt it anymore and I felt it in my daily life. Chicago was a very segregated city, continues to be a very segregated city. And when you went into the police department, black cops worked in black areas, didn't work in white areas at all. White cops, of course, could work wherever they wanted to work. And if you were Hispanic and Spanish speaking, you were in a, in a Latino district or area. Those kinds of things took place. I mean, there were, no, there were no women in patrol at all when I started. They were just starting in Chicago in the mid-60s a social experiment of putting a black and a white officer together in a patrol car. They called them salt and pepper cars. Unbelievable. You know, to see whether or not a black and a white cop could work together. I mean, that was a big deal. Did you work one of those? They, they kind of forced breakup of partners. And on occasion, I worked with uh, white guys. And I had one in particular that was a negative experience. But I had others that weren't. And so it all depended on the individual just like it does now. You know. So, yeah, it was an issue. No question about it. But I wouldn't say it's come full circle. I'd say in some regards it never left. It never really went away. It never really went away. Did you think about that when your son told you that he was going to well, join the Philadelphia yeah. Police Department? You know, first of all, I, I never steered him one way or the other. So he just came to you and said, Dad, well, I'm thinking about joining the Philadelphia Police Department. He went to Penn State. Well, that was his problem to begin with. Yeah, and his major was criminal justice. Even worse then, right? And so... <laughs> That's when, you know, I started thinking this kid was thinking about maybe going into policing. And I was hoping it would be probably at the federal level. He um, became a juvenile probation officer here in Philadelphia. That's a tough gig. And he wanted to go with the FBI. But during the recession, the feds weren't hiring. 
so he was on a team there called uh, JET, Juvenile Enforcement Team, which is made up of juvenile probation and Philly police officers. And so some of the cops from Philly said, man, you ought to come on the job. So he applied and he came on the job as a Philadelphia police officer. Out of all the time I spent as a police officer and as a police chief, the proudest moment I had was when I swore him in. Beautiful. That was a uh, very unique and meaningful experience. He then later left and went to ATF, which is good. And he's, he's enjoying it, and he's still here in uh, Philadelphia. I'm a parent. Obviously, you worry. I never worried about myself, and I worked in some pretty hazardous units, but I never worried about myself. But it's different when you're thinking about your child. Well, I mean, you were heading up a narcotics unit right through the crack epidemic right well, in the I 90s. Well, I was a sergeant in narcotics for seven years before I became a commander of narcotics. I mean, I was going on raids, and back in those days, we didn't wear bulletproof vests. In fact, if you wanted a, a bulletproof vest, the department made you go out and buy it yourself. You know, it was heavier, so it didn't fit underneath your garment, so you had to put it in a carrier and just throw it on when you were going through the door, take it off right after. There aren't too many things in policing that are more dangerous than executing a search warrant. Yeah. They really aren't. Yeah, when I see a lot of these armchair critics, I don't subscribe to the idea that you must have a policing background to comment on policing. But every now and again, there's a few people you say, really, you should go do a solar traffic stop like one night or be the first through the door. Right. Just give it a go and then see how you feel right. about right. Right. the kind of pious attitude that you've got from the exalted ivory tower from which you speak. Well, there are a few, especially some of the talking heads that you see uh, that really have no experience or even worse, limited because they're an attorney or something like that, but they've never been on the front line dealing with this stuff. And sometimes it definitely does show with the commentary. And I do a lot of work now with uh, CNN. I try to be as objective as I can be, but also I can't ignore the experience I have. I mean, I know what it's like. One of the things that I was always impressed with, you're a little bit like Jon Stewart in his peak when he was doing The Daily Show. He knew when to be funny and he knew when to be outraged. You always seem to get the right tone. You knew when to defend policing to the hilt and you knew when to say, you know what, we kind of screwed up there. We kind of fucked that one up and we need to think more about that. Was that gut or when things happened, did you spend a lot of time thinking through? It's just how did you get that feel? But it's actually watching others one thing I learned early on, and that is that bad news does not improve with age. <laughs> the longer it goes before you get it out, the worse it actually is right. for you. And so if it's an issue where you did something wrong, and, and I think about this one case we had where we had a traffic uh, officer that was in charge of calibrating breathalyzers, and he didn't do it correctly. And the bad part is, he knew they were not calibrated correctly, but they continued to use it. Good about grief. It. Yeah. yeah, we found out about it, and I called the press conference, because it's just a matter of time before they found out anyway. And I told them exactly what we had. And one of the reporters asked a question, well, what do you think we ought to do with those people that actually were charged with DUI? And I said, those cases ought to be dismissed Unless it's a situation where we had, you know, a serious DUI to take a blood sample. Yeah. Right? And so you've got that as evidence. Yeah. Right? That's different. But if you blew a .09 slightly over the limit, it could cost you your job. It can cost everything. Listen, we screwed up. Yeah. That's on us. 
And you don't defend that. How can you defend that? You can't. You get it out there, man, and just and take whatever lumps you have, but stand it up. If you've got a situation where a police officer's actions were not only within policy, they were reasonable. It may not look pretty, because use of force never looks pretty. But if the officer's actions were justified, then you say so. It's not going to make you popular, but if you're trying to be popular as a police chief, you're in the wrong business. I mean, you're there to just do your job, call it as you see it, and just let the cars fall where they may. You came into D.C., you came into Philadelphia from the outside. How do you go about the process of figuring out what to change, moving change forward? Well, first of all, I don't go in there with the attitude that I have to just go in there and just start changing stuff. First, you have to scan the environment and find out what's going on. Where are we now? What are the talents that I'm working with in terms of some of your senior command and other people? What do you look for then? I mean, because I know you, you came into Philadelphia and suddenly you promoted a couple of guys, Tommy Wright and Kevin Bethel, who's been a guest on the podcast as well. And I've been around Philly a while. I'd not heard of those guys. And suddenly these guys are deputy commissioners, but they are just rocking. How do you identify that talent? Some of that came as a bias that I have. I spent time as a district commander three years on the west side of Chicago in a district that, you know, unfortunately to this day continues to usually lead the city in the number of homicides, which in, in a city like Chicago is saying a lot. Right now uh, it is, yeah. But you know what? It was my favorite command. Of all the commands I had in Chicago Police Department, I enjoyed being a district commander more than anything because of the complexity of the job. You know, you were a mini police chief. You had to yeah. deal with community. You had to deal with your own officers, some good, some not so good. You had to deal with politics because you had elected aldermen and so forth. You had to deal with your bosses above you. If you can run a district effectively, then to me, the sky is the limit. I think what people fail to appreciate is that in some of the big cities, if you're a district commander, in the rest of the United States, you'd be a member of the Major City Chiefs Association. Exactly right. You have 200 cops, you have a population of 120,000 people with all sorts of chaotic problems. You'd be a major city chief anywhere else. You know, and people don't realize the complexity of it. Now, Kevin had the 17th district on, in South Philly, which is no joke, and, and Tommy had the 25th. Yeah, they have some entertainment. Yeah. Right? And so I spent time visiting all the districts, talking to all the commanders, getting a feel for whether or not they were on top of their crime, what they were doing about it, relationships with communities, and these two were outstanding. And plus, I wanted to send a strong message in the department that if you are good at what you do, you do your job, then you can be rewarded with promotion because I got Mayor Nutter to change the law that really prevented me from doing things like that. And so I brought up these two captains and made them deputy commissioners, and it worked out very, very well. Do you think that's an important thing when you go somewhere near is just to get out into the districts, go and visit people, get out of the office? You got to know who you're working with and you got to know the communities and what their expectations are. And when you come in from the outside, you know, that's something that's really, really important is to be visible, to be out there. Because, you know, Chicago, Chicago, D.C. is D.C., Philly is Philly. There are some similarities, but there are an awful lot of differences, and you have to respect that. Just because something is not familiar to you doesn't make it bad. It's just different. And so understand that and then find out, you know, why are they doing things this particular way? If it makes sense, leave it alone. If there's a way to tinker and make it a little bit better, then do it. I don't go in with the attitude that I just have to clean house or whatever, even with staff. I didn't go in making command changes right away. It was about six months in. I needed to see what I had to work with. And you didn't necessarily, like a new line taken over the pride, have to kill all the cubs? 
No, you don't. I mean, if I can use an analogy, this is football season. So you could have an all-pro defensive tackle, right, playing for the Eagles. You move him to wide receiver. Guess what? He's not going to be that good. He's too big. He's not fast. Probably doesn't have good hands. You're playing him out of position. We play people out of position in policing all the time because we're just filling slots as opposed to putting people in there that either have the ability to succeed because of their experience or you're giving them the kind of support in terms of education and training so they can succeed. Don't just fill a slot and then say, oh, this guy's worthless. Yeah, and then complain when they can't and do the exactly job. Exactly right. That feels like so much of police leadership right now. I wrote a book, Reducing Crime, which you kindly wrote the foreword for which was geared at trying to help mid-level police commanders because it feels like in so much now, you take people through patrol officer, sergeant, lieutenant, and then captain, but it feels like all their training up to that didn't prepare them for that job. They're good at individual cases, they may have been good detectives, but now they're in charge of the strategy for a small town. But there are reasons for that, Jerry. The only way to really move forward and make more money in policing is through the promotional process. So you could be smart enough to pass a multiple choice exam, right? And make it through the ranks, but you never had the desire to try to lead others. And there are some and, great cops wearing blue shirts, and, really and, smart and people who love if, that level. And, and if you, you like being that beat cop, you love community policing, you don't want to get promoted out of that position. Yeah. Why can't you get recognized, not just in terms of an award, but also financially, for what you bring to the table. Yeah. Same thing with detectives and so forth. And then the promotional process should be for those people who truly do want to lead. And if we're gonna do that, then what we have to do is even look at our evaluation process, because right now, performance evaluation is more of a joke than it is anything else. But even if it weren't a joke, what you're evaluating is a person's skills and abilities in their current role. But we don't look to see whether or not they're ready to move to the next level because we don't even understand what are the new skills and abilities yeah. they need for the next level. And then how do we develop that in that person? Mentoring, developing, you know, good leadership in policing is more by accident than by design because we do not develop on a consistent basis the next generation of leaders at any level. And then we complain and say, oh, poor first-line supervisors. Well, what are you doing to fix that? Yeah. And I, I think half the battle is that I don't think anybody knows what policing is going to look like in 10 years' time or in 15 years' time. We, we train for the skill set, so what we think is around now, we don't train that broader sense of skills that will enable people for them to figure out how to solve problems in 10 or 15 years' time. And that goes right into recruiting and hiring. I mean, you're hiring people now, and even though I've heard people say, you know, young people don't stay on jobs long and blah, blah, blah. They would if they felt comfortable, and if you gave them some reason to stay, they would. But what you're hiring today... They're very different now. They're very different now. But when you hire today, you're actually hiring for the next 20 years, 20... At least that's, that's the attitude you have to have. Yeah. Right? And so what does that 21st century police officer look like? What are we looking for in that individual? I'd rather get 25 of the right kinds of people as opposed to 100 and with 75 of them are a little on the iffy questionable uh -huh. side and they're going to keep me at writing reports or doing press conferences. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> you just get nervous every roll call, it, right? It, yeah, you know, because they really don't have the right mindset. They aren't service-oriented. And so policing today is challenging. It's tremendous opportunity because people are looking for reform. They're looking for something different. 
And now is the time when you can actually make that happen. But it's going to require fundamental redesign and rethinking of policing. And that includes policing structure. Now, it's difficult with unions, but it's going to require that sort of effort, I think, to really make the kind of real change. Was this really heightened to you when you co-chaired President Obama's task force on 21st century policing? I had those feelings even prior to that, but that gave me an opportunity to really explore it even more getting those different perspectives. And even when you look at the 11 people on the task force, I mean, we had civil rights attorneys, we had activists, we had academics, we had police professionals. I mean, we had a variety of Sounds people. Sounds like hell. Right? In fact, when I looked at that lineup, and President Obama, you know, ultimately chose the majority of them. I had influence on a couple of them. I didn't know if we could reach consensus on anything. Right. But you know what? Every single recommendation in that report, we reached 100% consensus on it. Sometimes we stayed up all night with the language oh, trying I'm to get sure. the wording yeah. right, but we did because we were closer together than we thought. And I think that's true for society in general. That strikes me that what you had were people who were reasonable and had a, an experienced perspective of what was going on. I mean, it's starting to abate now, but we're just on the tail end of some of this abolish nonsense with people who I think spend way too much uh, time in their ivory tower, wherever they are, and not enough time actually coming out to North Philadelphia. But even, you know, when people talk about defunding and they talk about abolishing, what they're talking about is just something that's different from what it is now that's more effective. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, but you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right, exactly. But when people say defund, for an example, most people, they're talking about, well, that money should go to mental health. It should go to the... And I don't disagree with that. It's a more measured response, absolutely. Abolish is nonsense, but defund is a really discussion about reforming how we address public safety, not just criminal justice, but public safety. And I'm good with that discussion. That's important. But see, we have to change the way we think. When I think of public safety, I think in traditional terms. I think of police, fire, emergency, medical, those agencies that typically fall within that umbrella. When I use the term community safety, it broadens my thinking because that incorporates mental health, homelessness, substance abuse. Drug addiction, yep. All those kinds of things in addition to your more traditional public safety. Would you include in things like that just minor disorders? It always struck me when I go to community meetings in the worst part, the hardest hit neighborhoods, you think, well, everybody's just going to be complaining about shootings. But so often what the community complains about is the day-to-day bullshit that just grinds them down. Just the minor disorder that's so pervasive, it's just exhausting for these poor folk. And they're absolutely right, but you know what? We don't listen as police like we should. We still walk to that same meeting with an armful of statistics of part one offenses to try to convince people that they're safer. And they know damn well they're not safe. Because yeah, they walk to the bodega and it's weird. Or they it's go crazy. to bed at night and they hear gunshots. Yeah. And they hear them so often they don't even bother to call 911 anymore. Right. right? We don't listen and hear what people are actually saying to us. Hear what they're saying when they t- say defund and abolish. That should scare the hell out of you because what they're telling you is this ain't working. Status quo. You're not reacting to what I need. The words that they use were not really necessarily carefully and well thought through, right? And it turned a lot of people off. But the message is there. Yeah. Even something as extreme as abolish, you know, they know they need some form of police. I kind of hope so. Okay. And I think the majority of people do. The majority of people do. That's very true. Okay. But what should that look like? 
Because if you had community safety and you had all these other elements, which includes mental health, substance abuse, housing, all those kinds of things that lead to safe, healthy neighborhoods, that means the city has to rethink. They need to be thinking in much broader terms instead of these silos that they have where they got a housing department, then they got mental health over here, then they've got some other, you know, license and inspection over there, and they don't communicate with each other. Oh, and even if they do, they don't even step up. Right. So how do you bring them all together to be able to make for real safe neighborhoods that are sustainable? I don't think of public safety anymore. I think of community safety. Police don't have to be first responders. Now, granted, the first responders, because cities have grossly underfunded these other services for decades. But police don't have to be first responders. But it doesn't mean that, you know, there are some of these calls are dangerous. You'll need a cop to be there. I also think sometimes that there is an underappreciation for how well some cops actually deal with people with mental health problems. There are some really great cops out there who just have the right tone and can strike the right balance. There's definitely a place for professionals for in many, many cases, but I think we also underestimate that there are a lot of good cops out there actually dealing with these things pretty well. They are. You know, CIT, crisis intervention training, that goes a long way to help with all that sort of thing. But the other part of that, too, is or at least we're just starting to appreciate the fact that many cops have mental health problems. The trauma that you're exposed to on a regular basis as a police officer, that is just not normal. If a police officer is shot or stabbed, we take care of them. They get the best medical care and so forth. What about the psychological scars that are there? How often do we get a mental health check? And for the know? colleagues who've been there, who've been around when one of their officers got shot, I've been reading up a chunk recently about the increasing pervasiveness of compassion fatigue in first responders. It's like you have a bank of compassion and it, it just gets depleted and it gets it depleted does. quickly in tough cities with big problems. But that's a mental health issue and that's where that mental health counseling, whatever you want to call it, would really help get through those periods of time. And how does that then affect the community? Because when that bank of compassion has been depleted, people look at you and they say, you're cold, you don't care. Because you're not outwardly showing any kind of empathy or compassion. Because that tank is empty and you have to protect yourself. Yes. And so you can't cry over every single homicide and so you build up these walls, but you have nobody to talk to. Officers begin to self-medicate, take care of it themselves, high rate of divorce, high rate of suicide, high rate of substance abuse. And it's just like resilience, compassion, all those things over time really take its toll. Does that stretch all the way to the top floor office? It does. It definitely does. When you were in the commissioner's office, we had it a number does. of officers killed in the line of duty. Well, I'm going to tell you something here. I was police commissioner in Philly for eight years. I had eight officers killed in the line of duty. I lost five within a nine month span. And two months prior to me taking over is when Chuck Cassidy got killed on uh, Halloween. Yeah, uh, And so the department hadn't gotten over that. When I lost my last officer in March 5th of 2015, Robert Wilson. Oh, I remember that, yeah. He was killed in a GameStop. He's GameStop. on duty, popped in. On to duty, buy, popped yeah. in to buy his son a game because his son had done well in school and his birthday was, was coming up. I was trying to decide whether, did I want to stay, did I want to retire? The mayor had said, if you want to stay, you can, but he clearly wanted to bring Rich in, and I didn't have a problem with that. A mayor ought to be able to pick their own police chief. But when Robert got killed, I knew then it was time for me to go because I couldn't bury another police officer. Emotionally, I couldn't do it. I couldn't bury another one. And I told my wife, I said, that's it. All I could do is hope I don't have another one between now and the date I announced my retirement. 
but I knew that was it because my bank of resilience was drained. I couldn't do it again. I've seen a lot of officer-involved deaths and my associations with police, but I remember that one being particularly devastating. I just remember everybody in the police department being shot. He was very, very popular. He was popular. He was a damn good police officer. But the other part of that is that was captured on high-definition video, the entire thing. And I was a homicide detective that actually got on the uh, elevator with Rich. And Rich told me the story. And Rich he, Ross, he asked the it, Rich Ross, And he said, a detective who had been in homicide for like 13, 14 years, said, you know, he said last night was the first night where I couldn't sleep because he's watching that video. And we talked a little bit about trauma and the psychological impact. Now that we have video, you watch people getting killed over and over again on video, and there's not a damn thing you can do to stop it. You can't warn them. You can't do anything. You see it coming. What impact does that have on people that have to investigate these crimes now? You're not just coming after the fact. You're actually living it. You're seeing it. Yeah. We have to take these things into account and deal with the mental well-being of our officers. And I hate to keep going back to that. But I think it's such an important topic. In fact, in the President's Task Force report, one of our pillars is officer safety and well-being. So the Robert Wilson murder was kind of like a breaking point for you? It was. It, it, it was. It, it's emotionally draining, one, the tragedy of it all, and having to you know, look family members in the eye and deal with you know the small kids knowing that their father or their mother is gone forever that sort of thing there's also guilt that you feel even, the, even in the commissioner's office in the commissioner's office you know why we make decisions every day putting officers intentionally in the harm's way in a sense yeah. looking at crime pattern here's the robberies here are the shootings blah 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 what do we do we put cops in there they encounter the guys that are committing these crimes yeah you have to do it it's the right thing to do right because that's what you're paid to do. But don't think that doesn't bother you. I remember when John Falowski was murdered, and this was at Broad and Olney. One of the more adventurous areas of the city. Actually, yeah, 2009. Guy threatening a cab driver. They respond, didn't tell the dispatcher was the guy said, cop shows up, I'm gonna shoot him. And they stop this guy, he's got his hands in his pocket, won't take his hands, he shoots right through the pocket. He hits John, kills we're at the hospital. His wife comes, Kim. She's five months pregnant. And she's screaming and she's hollering, oh, why did he have to be working? He was working in overtime detail on high crime. How come these guys have to work? How come they have to do this? How come they, and I'm listening to all that. Of course, yeah. Listen, I love Kim to death. I was there for the birth of his son, actually. They called me up and I went to the Abington oh, Hospital beautiful. and I was there for the birth of the son. But I shouldn't have been there. John should have been there. Well, I hoped it was at least helpful for you. These things add up, though. I mean, we talk about that bank of compassion, the bank of resilience. It eats away, you know. And even though, you know, you learn to suppress your feelings, you learn to, to deal with stuff, it takes its toll. You know, I was a police chief for 17 years, but I spent 47 as, a, as in, in policing, 45 active service as a sworn officer. I've seen so much death, man, I couldn't even begin to give you a number of homicides and sex assaults and kids being abused and all those kinds of things. It adds up. And now that you're at the top of the organization, it doesn't mean that stuff goes away. And now you're still dealing with it at a different level and sending people out to, do, to deal with it. 
but it affects the organization top to bottom. And so when we talk about mental health, everybody in the department needs to have at least every other year, there ought to be a mental health checkup. That includes the chief, everybody. A couple of departments have started mandating it. Once a year, you go and speak to a psychologist. That's what it needs to be. You know, I say every other because Philly's so large. You know, I mean, I don't think it's practical to think you could run almost 7,000 guys every year through it. But every other year at a minimum. I think a lot of people were impressed when they saw the task force report on 21st century policing that that was included as a pillar. What is your sense of what the response has been like to that report? I mean, mixed results. There are still some departments that are using it as a guide, but I was very encouraged that there are departments that still are going online trying to find a copy of the report. But we went through four years of the Trump administration that pretty much threw any idea of police reform out the window. They actually took the report off the cop's office website. So we lost momentum. You know, if we had to do over again, we would have added a seventh pillar, and that's recruitment, hiring, and retention. Yeah. But in 2015, that was not the crisis that it is today. We talked about the worst parts of the job, but yeah, you'd still do it again. So what were the best parts? The best parts of the job is knowing that you are making a difference. You don't always see it, but you have to believe that, you know, as bad as things are, what would it be like if you weren't doing what you were doing? Very true. The media focuses a lot on the negative because that's what sells. But when you get the positive reactions from community members and so forth, even from your own police officers, and they tend not to say it too loudly because that's part of the policing culture, is to kind of always be grumbling about something. <laughs> Do you think that's ever going to change? No. <laughs> and they say, you know, I like what you did here or I like this. It's enough to keep you going. What really renewed my energy was actually having the opportunity to go to different cities. You know, my dream job was becoming superintendent of Chicago Police Department. And I made it as one of two finalists for the job. One of the most depressing days of my career. The very next day, I got a call from a search firm, literally the next day, saying, listen, we hear you didn't get the job. We're looking for a chief in D.C. and we'd like to talk to you. One thing led to another and I went to D.C. And I learned more during my nine years as chief in D.C. during some pretty exciting times when you really stop and think about it. I mean, I was there 9-11 and anthrax, uh, D.C. sniper, all, the, all those kinds of things. And what was probably the lowest point in my career turned out to be the best thing ever happened to me. Right. That's very zen. And I never would have come to Philly if I hadn't had the, the D.C. experience because I would have never left Chicago. Right. So what did you learn in D.C.? D.C. was a very dysfunctional city and very dysfunctional department. It's absolutely fine now. In the, in the 90s because, well, Marion Barry was the mayor. I mean, they were driving 10-year-old police cars. They were buying used tires from the U.S. Park Police. The facilities were terrible, had raw sewage leaking in locker rooms in a couple of the districts. No heat in the winter, no air in the summer. No, they should put that in the recruitment adverts, right? Absolutely ridiculous. And so we were able to really make a lot of changes and get all those things changed, all those things improved. And that satisfaction, that sense of knowing that you made a difference in them, and the attitude of the officers, how it changed. And so I learned a lot of valuable. There was no one thing I learned. Learn how to be a police chief. Can that be taught? I don't know if it can be taught because until you have it, until you're in the chair, as they say, but I think you can give people a more realistic expectation of what the job entails to better prepare them for some of the challenges that they'll face. 
one of the recommendations in the task force report is that there be, you know, command colleges established in England or the Scottish Police College. We need that sort of thing here. It really develops that leadership. That's that's not really got much traction, unfortunately. We certainly need a castle. The Scots have a castle for growing out. Oh life, yeah, I've yeah. been there. It's it's nice. You can do a lot toward preparing people to assume these top command positions, but we we really don't do enough. One of the questions in a presentation I do, it came from a guy, Greg Brown, the CEO of Motorola. He asked a question, he said, do you want the job or do you want to do the job? Because wanting it and understanding what it takes to really do it, two different things. That's a huge gulf between those. I think people want the, the respect, the authority, they want the trappings of the position, exactly they want the scrambled right. edge on the shoulder. Exactly right. But then when you're in it, it's just all grind. But are you ready to do what it takes to do it and do it successfully? I remember coming to your office a number of times after meetings in the Roundhouse in Philly, and you're always in there late. The afternoons are always better because there were more chance to be more reflective, but the mornings were just slow death by meeting for you because it was just a grind to keep going. It is. And if you also remember him going back to something earlier about, you know, that well of resilience. In the conference room, I had pictures of every officer that died on my watch, killed in the line of duty, right on that wall. And I, I did that intentionally. I, I wanted them looking over my shoulder to really constantly remind me of the importance of the decisions we make in that office because it affects their lives. You found that empowering rather than depressing? I did. It was very empowering very empowering. I didn't want to forget them. I didn't want to forget them. And nor should they be forgotten. I was always praying another picture didn't go up, but I did not want to forget them. And, uh, and I didn't. Is it even possible to be a police chief nowadays? Sure it is. I mean, it's challenging. It's always been challenging. But there doesn't but seem like there's much space for mistakes. Well, that's because right now the public pressure, but when you take a job, you got to make sure who, who's your boss going to be. Is it a city manager? Is it a mayor? What do they want from you? How much autonomy are you going to have? How much authority? Are they going to back you up? Because I was lucky. I had Tony Williams in D.C. and I had Mike Nutter in Philly. Who, other than having a fantastic name, was a very, was, he's not dead or anything, is a very smart guy and a very thoughtful man. Yep. He was a very good mayor. Yeah. When you're thinking about what your team is, it's not just bringing up good people from within the department, but who are you working with outside? It's who you're working with outside, you, especially in big cities. You've got colleges and universities with, with talented people there that can help you in terms of research and things like that that you need to really make sure you're on the right track, what's working, what's not. Nola Joyce was with me in Chicago. Fantastic. Uh, the first person I asked to come with me to D.C. was Nola. And then I talked her into coming to Philly. Now she knows who to blame. <laughs> you know, she has strengths where I have weaknesses. I'm operational, and I avoided those administrative positions, which was a mistake in retrospect. She has strengths where I have weaknesses, so part of being a good police chief, I think, and not saying I was oh, able to Oh, trust me, you were. Don't worry, you were. But you have to know yourself. You have to know your strengths and your weaknesses and build a team around you that really complements you in the right area. That's the key lesson straight from Sun Tzu right there from what, 500 BC. Um, don't be afraid to admit what you don't know. There's a tendency for police chiefs and for leaders to bring on people who are like them. What you're saying is the key is to bring on people who fill in your gaps, the people who are not like you. And I want people that aren't afraid to push back, but you have to create an environment where they feel comfortable pushing back. Because if, they, if they're afraid to speak up, 
and you'd say, okay, I'm going to do XYZ. I'm going to change the district boundaries here or I mean, whatever it might be. And they all say, oh, yeah, 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 or they don't say anything, right? So, Ramsey, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. How are Good you? Good to see you, Fred, and Good thank see you for your service on the you. Marine Corps birthday, Oh, okay. Oh, Veterans Day tomorrow. I'm a Marine. That's right. We get our day today. We get our Veterans Thank you for your service. Sir. Cheers, sir. Thank you for your service, too. Thank you, Fred. Enjoy your day, gentlemen. Thank you. And you, thank sir. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But uh, knowing, knowing your own strengths and your weaknesses, but people who aren't afraid to push back, you create an environment where their opinion matters. People will, will sit back and they'll think, they'll say, oh man, you know, we tried doing that before, it didn't work. But they won't tell you that because they're afraid to speak up and say it. Right. And especially when you come from the outside, you don't know where all the landmines are. That's the truth. But other people do. Is there a role then for academics? Sure can, it is. Can I speak a bit of truth to, to, to power? To say, you know, this city tried this and here were the results, here's what happened, here's what they found. When I was in charge of implementing community policing in Chicago, the CAPS program, years ago in the 90s. You worked with West Skogan up there. We, yeah. we partnered with West Skogan yep. and formed a, a consortium to evaluate community policing. But I told Wes, we had a meeting around that, him and Dennis Rosenbaum. And I told him, I said, listen, I'm going to give you full access, 100%, whatever you want, whatever you need. I want to know if this stuff works as much as you do, to be honest with you, because I was a little skeptical of community policing initially, right? Right. And if it does work, I want to know why. But here's the one condition. If in your evaluation you see something that's really not working the way it ought to, I want to know about it. You still write about it and say that it's it, did, it didn't work, but then you can also reevaluate later on and say that I'm, these changes were made and now it's right. XYZ. I don't want to wait three years or five years for you to write your book telling me everything I did wrong. Right. We need Working to know. Collaboration when you, you did the foot patrol experiment for us, I mean, we got feedback, right? I mean, is this, is this just a feel-good thing or is it really having an impact? Yep. It had an impact. Well, that helped me sell it to others. Bethel was, was skeptical of he foot was. patrol. Yeah, and maybe that's the key to some of this is a little bit of healthy skepticism. But Kevin was skeptical and he told me he was skeptical. But you know what? We went ahead and we said, okay, well, let's see. And that's when we brought you on board to take a look and see and give us some actual feedback. Because we needed to know if it turned out it was nothing, why would we continue doing it? Right, but that requires embracing a sense of doubt. And I don't think that's a and that's character. Healthy. But that's not a characteristic that a lot of police chiefs are willing to admit having. What you're talking about is this healthy doubt, let's find out. Well, it is healthy doubt. And even if you know something works, you may not know why, and it's important to know why. Flood the area with a bunch of cops. Yeah, you su you suppress it. Shootings are going to go down. I guarantee you, you got a cop on every other block. But can you afford to do that? Because eventually you're going to pull them out and go somewhere else, and have you really solved the problem? Or did it take that many cops? Or could you have done it with five guys on foot patrol in a given area? Could you have done it with better strategic planning and identifying people who are causing the most harm in that community, building cases and getting them off the street. So if we were sitting here with a 17-year-old young Chuck Ramsey right now in 2021, would you tell him to join the job? Would you tell him to go on and be a oh, police yeah. chief? Okay, you take care. I got to be back by 12 anyway. Well, I know you have another thing to go to, so for finding the time to come and have a morning coffee with me, thanks very much. So this is fun, right? Right. Thank you. 
That was episode 41 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Philadelphia's Chestnut Hill neighborhood in November 2021. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore Reducing Crime. Instructors and lecturers can also DM me for a spreadsheet of multiple choice questions for every Reducing Crime episode. And as always, you can find a transcript of this and every episode at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. Be safe and best of luck. <laughs>